And uh, Super Bowl Sunday next week. Um, Eagles or Chiefs? I don't know. It does seem a little mixed there today. This, this doesn't have a lot of air in it. The one, uh, it just, I was going to go for the balcony today, but I don't know. This could be a problem. So I, I've tried that before, Pastor Gary. Our liability insurance isn't quite high enough, if you know what I mean. Um, but Super Bowl party for the men of all ages next Sunday. Um, you'll want to be a part of that. Head over to kingstreet.org. Reserve yourself uh, a seat at that food and fun and friend event while you're watching the, the game on the big screen. Pastor Al, you got this? Not bad, eh? Not bad. Yeah. Not sure if they're cheering for the spiral or for the catch, but we'll take it, right? Both of us. All right, so we're wrapping up this series called Voices. And if you're new to us today, this series has been all about learning what it means to turn down the volume, right? There's a lot of competing voices out there for our attention. And so we've been learning what it means to just be a little bit more deliberate about monitoring the noise. And I mentioned during the very first talk that I'm driving around where my, wherever the, the, the road takes me these days without talk radio, I just turn off the music. There's no podcast. It's me and the silence of the road. And I'm actually enjoying the fact that it's a little bit quieter in my life these days. Um, have you experienced, maybe during the last number of, of weeks, the cacophony of voices that come our way and the intensity of the noise? And when we're somewhat oblivious to it, it can have a power over us, it can influence us and move us in all sorts of directions, and they're not always healthy directions. So we, we early on in the series, talked about turning down the volume, and we talked about the guiding voice of the Spirit, right? Paying attention to the whisper as God invites and prompts and as he directs and as he superintends. We look for the hand of God as he's, as he's gently moving us and calling us to go in certain directions. We talked about recognizing the source and how it's not always crystal clear on the voices we hear. And by the way, if this is your first time, we've been declaring ourselves, we're not a community who runs around hearing voices. Uh, we do hear an inside whisper, we'll call it. And we're being selective as we talk about uh, this morning, selective listening. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Those of you who are on social media, Instagram, Facebook, there's a post there. It's been made this morning, I believe, already. If not, it's coming out in the next few minutes. Um, you can head over to Facebook, Instagram. Let us know what the takeaway was for you during this series. Was there an aha moment? Was there something that kind of... Um, reminded you that you need to move in a different direction, something maybe new to think about, we would love to hear the community voice of, of what has been said and what has been understood. So uh, today, selective listening. Uh, actually, last week, remember, we talked about using our best voice. Uh, we talk about the voices that are out there, and then all of a sudden, we have to pause for a moment and say, what kind of contribution am I making to the voices in the world? And so hopefully this past week, you were using your, your best voice. But today we're going to talk about uh, selective listening. Our passage to ponder is on the screen. And so uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? As is our custom around here, we repeat it together loud enough so our neighbors can hear us. And so um, would you join me by reading this passage from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. 
As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The word of the Lord for us today. Church family, you may be seated. So this morning, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have a two-point sermon, uh, which means it's just a little bit briefer uh, than you would typically expect from someone like me as a teaching pastor. Two-point sermon, we're going to talk about some of the external filters that we need to acquire um, as we think about selective listening. And then we're going to talk about how we can improve our inside voice. Um, There is a lot of chatter that goes on internally. And when we're not paying attention and we're not present in the moment, sometimes that inner dialogue can go um, undetected, so to speak. It's like the operation system of the soul and the mind is always chatting. We're talking to ourselves. And it influences tremendously our attitude, our core beliefs about ourselves, about our neighbor, about the world around us. And so we want to step back, pause for a moment, take inventory about how we can improve our inside voice and how we do talk to ourselves about ourselves. And uh, so what I'll do is I'm going to lay out three, I hope, helpful principles that will just sort of set the stage for us as we look at an extended narrative passage found in the Older Testament in the book of Numbers. And then we'll draw those three overarching principles into the passage. And then we'll have a conversation around this idea of paying attention to our, to our inside voice. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. So filtering external voices, thought number one for consideration. Here is um, one of the overarching principles that I hope will help us today. We need to realize that influence is subtle and incremental. Influence is subtle and incremental. We could look back over our lives, over the last number of years perhaps, and we may have had core convictions that were with sharp edges around them. And then based on the nature of the way our culture has evolved and changed and shifted in some ways, um, those sharp edges have become somewhat dulled. Or maybe even those core convictions have been changed. And sometimes our core convictions should be changed because we've been holding on to either false ideas about God or about life, or, or sometimes uh, those core beliefs should have been retained and they were somewhat dulled in some way. Um, for all of us in this room today, we know about the dynamic of drift. Whole organizations can drift when those things that are central become peripheral. Um, Relationships can drift emotionally when shared experiences become less and less common, when two people become two ships in the night, so to speak, the emotional connection becomes less intense. And so relationships can experience emotional drift along the way. Our culture is forever and always changing. I think as people of faith, regardless of where you find yourself today on that faith continuum, those of us who put our saving faith in Jesus, deeply devoted disciples, maybe some of us are at the edges of faith, kind of curious, searching hearts. Others of us are here with a friend today, and perhaps maybe you're saying, this isn't for me at all, and we're glad that all of you are here. But culture always changes. This is why when we open up scripture and we say with confidence, the word of the Lord, What we actually mean is there is a message that is timeless. It transcends culture. It transcends times, epochs in history. 
And we say that with confidence. Whenever we read scripture, we can say the word of the Lord. It's never confined or bound to a cultural context or a specific time in history. It always, we can say, he always speaks. Transcends culture, transcends time. But culture is always changing. Michael Medved um, wrote a book a number of years ago now called Hollywood vs. Religion. And the premise of his book went something like this. He made an argument that in the 1960s, Hollywood began to express more deliberately and more noticeably its bias against Judeo-Christian worldview and values. And he posed the question in his book. He says, does Hollywood reflect or inform culture? By reflection, he means just shining back to the culture what's already there. And by inform or instruct, it was this sense in which introducing new ideas or strengthening certain kind of emphases. And his short answer was yes. Hollywood has had, since the 1960s, you probably notice it in films that you watch, a certain bias against Jewish, Christian um, worldview and values. And it does reflect and it does inform or instruct. And that has great implications for us. If we're going to be students of the world that we live in, because this is our father's world, and he cares deeply about culture, and he cares deeply about people, and he wants us to be up close and personal to the culture, immersed in it to a degree, but not transformed by it. And so we need to always be paying attention. What is it that is in our culture right now that is inviting me to buy in? Again, Hollywood versus religion. Hollywood informs and reflects. We have to always be crystal clear around what we believe to be true. And so remember this, influence is always subtle and incremental. It happens when you're watching a Netflix film if you turn your brain off. It happens when you watch CBC or the National Post and you turn your thinking brain off. I read an article this past week that the CBC had a certain vantage point on the issue. And I went over to my friends at the National Post to read them because I read both. And I saw a very different vantage point. When you're reading media, whether it be social media or whether it be the collective mainstream media, always remember, they are no longer just reporting the news. They are giving commentary about the news. It may lean left, it may lean right, And it's okay that it leans left or leans right. We just have to sit there and say, this is coming from a left view. This is coming from a right view. And so we have to retain that capacity for us to discern and to stay engaged. And so um, we need to remember influence is subtle and it's incremental. Secondly, adopting a strong biblical worldview is an imperative. And it's really important that we understand God's character and promises. Um, If we don't understand who God is, if we don't understand what he has said, you and I are going to be on autopilot in this world and whatever wave comes our way, we will be tossed, as scripture says, to and fro. And so we need to have an anchor, a secure place that keeps us rooted so that we don't drift and immersing ourselves in a Christian worldview that cannot be attained or achieved without reading scripture on a regular basis. When it's all over for me and they retire my jersey somewhere in this place and I retire, 
I hope you'll say, man, that guy was pretty steamed up about the Bible. He thought the Bible was a really, really important book. Absolutely 100% guilty as charged. I hope we never come to a place on our Christian journey and adventure with God where we think we can be carried along by moments like this when we gather. These are wonderful moments. Small group communities, wonderful moments. But the daily reading of God's word, allowing his word to read us, and we become anchored and rooted in something, remember, that transcends culture and times because it is an eternal voice that speaks to us that we still need today. Our culture might say that we've outgrown, outgrown the ancient text, that we are old school, that we are old fashioned. May we be guilty as charged that I'm still attaching myself to the time tested truth of God's ancient word. It still stands up and it still provides help for married couples and for families and for complex decision making. It still helps us develop culture and our our cultural values, and it still helps lift societies. It does all of these things, and it forever will. So God's character and promises. And then thirdly, this is part of the principal foundation before we look at a text together. We need to recognize the purpose and problem of fear. Fear can keep us safe and can keep us from our best life. Uh, When you and I become afraid, it can actually be a wonderful gift. Uh, the other day, I, I, I thought there might have been some coyotes and stuff around our house, and I went for a walk early morning, and I was watching these, I saw these paths in the fresh blanket of snow, and there was no human beside the feet. <laughs> so I was wondering, they were a good-sized paws. And so I go through this path and everything, and I didn't have my glasses on, wasn't a good idea, but anyway, I'm looking around, and, and, and I was a little bit more intense, right, of thinking, and did I hear something, did something move over there in the bushes and all of that kind of stuff? Fear can save your life. Fear is not a bad thing. It's actually like we're hardwired to be afraid. It's how we keep living, right? If we don't have any fear, we walk through paths, we put ourselves in danger, and I'm not a bungee jump guy. I'm never gonna jump out of a plane. It's just not my thing. Um, But if you ever do, you wanna make sure you take the course before you jump, right? You wanna have healthy respect for this force called gravity because it works every time. 10 times out of 10, gravity always works. And so having a healthy fear keeps you and I alive. And yet fear that's unhealthy can keep you and I from our best life. We can kind of back away from opportunities. We can resist invitations. We can say, no, I don't know if it's going to turn out. I want to have a 100% guarantee. I want to be certain before I take the jump, so to speak. Fear can be a wonderful, beautiful, life-preserving gift And it can also keep us from the kind of life that God wants us to lead. All right, ready to unpack a large passage of scripture. It's a narrative section. I'm going to make a few comments and then we'll talk about our internal voice before we finish up today. All right, so here's the text for us. It should be on the screen, Numbers chapter 13. And we'll kind of take different parts of it and we'll go into chapter 14 as well. It's about Moses leading the people of Israel from Egypt And he's headed through the backside of the desert towards the promised land. And God had made some pretty deliberate, intentional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And when God makes a promise, God keeps his word. And so here's where we pick up the story. And the promise is emphasized in the first two verses. Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, because this was the promised land. And then this part you can underline, which I am giving 
to the Israelites. So send some men. I want them to go and explore the land of Canaan. Oh, by the way, this is the land that I am giving to the Israelites. God does not renege on his promises. A very important idea as we read through the rest of the text. God had promised the Israelites the land of Canaan and he was gonna keep his word. So we'll keep reading. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Now he gives them a series of questions. He says, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. We want to know what the land is like. And so really important here in this passage to understand this about faith. Sometimes when we're at the extreme whole of faith, we think that God invites us to check our brains at the door. And when we struggle with faith, we think we have to reason and figure it all out on our own. God wants us to live in the uncomfortable middle of trusting that when we leap, there'll be a net that will catch us. And at the same time, he's inviting us also to use our thinking capacity because he made us this way. I really do believe God wants us to love him with our whole person, including our minds. That's consistent with Jesus. And so he says to these men, he says, go into the land and do your recognizance work. Do your due diligence. It's really, really important. Go in with an open posture. Go in looking to learn. Go in looking to discover. Go in with your five senses, ready to evaluate, ready to learn. All right, we'll keep reading. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and there is fruit there too. But now the rest of the conversation changes. But the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. I love this. Caleb, he's got a different spirit, right? Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Did you hear the cross-cultural voice of Caleb who says, I'm not going to argue with all of these things that they just said, but you know what? I've got my, a butt of my own. I think we can do this. We should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report. All reports are not created equal. National Post, CBC different reports. Keep your thinking mind. A bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those things in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers. Is that an exaggeration? 
We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. This is an intimidated report from intimidated people. But Caleb is made of something very different. Always remember this. Two different people can see the very same experience and see things very differently. Bias and agenda, we often discover what we're looking for. Every person in this room has a perspective, a backstory that informs our vantage point. We all have ways by which we see the events, perhaps interpret the events of our lives. And so it's really, really important that we become aware of how we listen, see, measure, become aware of all the things that are happening around us. Two different people can have a very same experience. One say, where is God in the middle of it? And another person say, I sense the presence of God in the middle of this. The way I've described it before in different ones, it's resonated with you. For the searching heart, God puts breadcrumbs. And when you're hungry, you'll find him. Right? If you're hungry enough for bread, you will follow the breadcrumbs. And so two different groups of people can see something very, very different. Listening selectively. All right, here's the last passage. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud because this was where they were coming from. Remember, they were grasshoppers. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt or in this wilderness. We would rather be dead or be slaves. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? They are practicing what psychologists call cognitive distortions. They're playing the role of the fortune teller. They're already projecting onto the future their worst fear. Remember, fear can save your life or it can keep you from your best life. This is what's happening here. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothing and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. We're sticking to our story. And then I love this. One group says, but this group says, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Only, he says, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But here comes a wonderful but. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. If you were there that day, what voice would you listen to? Selective listening requires at some point dialing in, tuning in and saying, this is the voice for me. If you play the story forward, this group of people, the 10 of the 12 that came back with a bad report, God sent a plague among that group and they all died. But God preserved Joshua and Caleb and they went in to the promised land. It really matters what voices we listen to. And without exaggerating today, 
Listening to the right voices can be a matter of life and death. If we incline our ear to destructive, deceptive, which is our passage to ponder, deceptive voices, we will find ourselves off course. Remember, the drift that happens. It's not just organizations, not just relationships. Our spiritual welfare can be at play when we drift. We drift far enough and we drift long enough. And so the culture is inviting us to go with the undertow. And God is saying, drop an anchor and drop it here and stay the course. There is a right. There is a wrong. There is good. There is evil. Make your camp in God's approved campsite. Call that home and believe his promises. So I love this about these men. They had confident humility. And when we have confident humility, it helps silence the fear that keeps us from our best life. All right, so we've got this external invitation. Sometimes the voices are loud. We got to dial them back. Sometimes there's a cacophony. We have to find our way through them. And we can't do it when we're drifting, tossed by the waves of the sea. Remember, influence is subtle and incremental. It happens to all of us. Fear can be a wonderful gift that saves us from our lives and it can keep us from our best life as well. Can I leave you with this last thought before we're done with this teaching series? The last one is this. I want to invite you to improve the way that you talk to yourself. And I need to improve the way that I talk to myself. Again, as I've already mentioned, we may not pay that close attention to all the inner dialogue. I remember Stuart Mulligan, my pastor, uh, growing up as a kid, he used to say, we all talk to ourselves. It's just that when you talk back, it becomes a problem. And um, I I like that. I know what he meant, um, the verbal. But sometimes we should talk back to ourselves. Sometimes we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never speak to a good friend. Sometimes the names we use to call ourselves something when we've made a mistake is not a good and beautiful word. Anybody in this room ever beat yourself up when you make a mistake? Okay, I have a few friends here because I do the same. It is so easy for us to be hard on ourselves. And do you know, I'll call it out today. Do you know that people who identify with religious communities can sometimes be harder on ourselves than the rest of the culture? We have this beautiful invitation by a gracious and loving God to stay in step with him to a beautiful, beautiful life with God. And he is covering us with his grace, immersing us in the deep end of his unconditional love. And then when we mess up, we just torment ourselves. I have some, I think, good news for you today. God expects you to mess up. He expects you to fail. He expects you to sin. It's quiet in here today. Isn't that encouraging? Three or four of you are encouraged. Others of you think it's not good that God expects you to sin. Why did he send Jesus? To die on a cross and take the weight of your sin, past, present, and future, if he thought you could do it on your own. If he thought you could just have enough illumination, kind of have this beautiful information experience and say, there, I'll get it right myself now. Then he would have probably just sent us a manual and we wouldn't have had to have Jesus die for us to cover our sins. Knowledge will not save you. Your good behavior won't save you. Jesus saves you. 
The whole book of Galatians is written that says this, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation. He was writing to the first century Christians, not about circumcision or not about good works. They matter. Back in that context, it mattered. Good works still matter today. But at the end of the day, you can't do enough good in order to tilt the scales to be saved. Jesus saves us. But somehow in my mind, I think I should be better. Somehow in my mind, I think, but I shouldn't still struggle. I still shouldn't have that habitual way. If that's you today in this place, you are part of the human family. Remember the sin that so easily entangles? The writer of Hebrews says it easily entangles us. You don't have to go and try hard to get entangled in sin. It happens easily enough. Now, Jesus doesn't look back and say, hey, I'm good with it. He doesn't do that because he knows that sin that entangles you trips you up and it doesn't lead you to a progressive life where you're free. You're entangled. And that's not what you were made for. You were made for more. You were made for something more beautiful than that. And so God says, oh, come on, leave that behind. Come with me. I'm going to give you my spirit to give you the power to overcome that. But when we berate ourselves and when we reverse, you know, Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation. Well, that's for everybody else, but not for me. When we do that, we get in the way of the liberating work of the spirit. So for us in this room today, how do we do this? Um, Just a couple quick thoughts. Um, the importance of challenging our thoughts and informing ourselves of God's goodness and his power. Um, In in Psalm 42, we're not really sure uh, what the context is, but David is likely the author. And he writes this Psalm because he's either on the run from Saul or probably on the run from his son, Absalom. But he's writing about what it means for him to be cut off from the people of God. And it is deeply painful for him. He's actually starting to spiral a little bit. And we get a little inside glimpse into his thoughts. And so he writes this in verse 11 of Psalm 42. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He does a little bit of challenging the thoughts. And he does a little bit of self-talk. He says, put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. It's tough right now. It's hard. You're in a dark place. You're on the run. You're lonely. You're cut off from the worshiping community, the people of God. But he says, no, this isn't the end of your story. He talks to himself, put your hope in God. When you come to a place like this, you hear someone like me invite you to elevate your thoughts, to understand the transcendent, the beautiful, the powerful God who made you in his image and likeness and who loves you so, so much. But then you go to your workplace, you go to your home, you go to all sorts of environments in our communities. And then we are trapped between our two ears. We're interpreting the events of our lives. And then we begin to offer commentary to ourselves that is not always faith-filled and not always anchored in the truth. And it perhaps might reflect more of our family of origin and some of the messages and the core beliefs that we were taught growing up. And God says by his Holy Spirit, no, don't listen to yourself. Listen to my spirit that is informing your true self, where you can rise above that. We're not talking some Pollyanna here, power of positive thinking, though I believe positive thinking is powerful. I'm encouraging you to just line up to the truth of God's word. Talk to yourself when necessary. It'll keep us from the ditches because there's something powerful and pervasive about the spiral. 
And if we don't push against it, we'll go down further and further and further. And we will feel like we are in a dark, dark hole. Jesus comes for people who end up in dark holes, but he doesn't want us to go down that rabbit trail. He wants us to find a new path, his path. All right, a loud inner critic, negative thoughts can keep us from realizing our potential and living a beautiful, adventurous life with God. Um, back to the human parts of who we are. Um, Moses was a tremendous leader, wasn't he? I, I look at some of the things he endured leading people. It's not always easy leading people. And when he was leading about 6 million or so coming through the backside of the desert, it was a challenge for him. And he had his moments, no question about it. But he was a tremendous leader. His father-in-law taught him what it meant to delegate authority, to share power, to uh, multiply himself, so to speak. He learned leadership. He was an excellent leader. But early in the narrative of Moses, God invites him to come and be a big part of the liberating movement of getting the Hebrew people out of the clutches of Pharaoh. And Moses had some significant apprehensions. Here's five of them that are found in scripture. There were probably more, but five are recorded for us. My paraphrase, God invites Moses to be his partner in liberating the Hebrew people. And in chapter three, verse 11 of Exodus, here's the paraphrase. Moses says, I don't have what it takes, God. I'm not competent enough. Why don't you look somewhere else? Because I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. Secondly, he's got five of these. He says in verse 13, two verses later, he says, I don't have all the answers. They're going to ask me questions and I'm going to go, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. There was no Wikipedia. There was no Google. I don't have all the answers. Number three, chapter four, verse one. He says this to God. What if this doesn't go very well? I don't want to sign up for something that's not a sure thing. I want to know that this is going to end well. What if it doesn't end well? It didn't end well for John the Baptist, did it? David had a lot of tough times during the middle of his leadership. Moses says, what if this doesn't go according to plan? Number four, verse 10 of chapter four. He says, I've got this stuttering problem. I'm not a great communicator. I trip over my tongue. I'm going to be in front of Pharaoh one day and I'm going to be saying something and the words won't even come out right. I'll be mumbling. I'll be stuttering. You need somebody else. You need someone with a silver tongue. I don't have one. And then finally, verse 13. <laughs> I like this one. I don't think I want to do this. The more I think about it, I know you're talking me into this, God, but at the end of the day, I just don't really have the desire for it. You know, I, it's not my calling, right? Those words only came out of Moses' mouth because the thoughts were entertained between his two ears. He was an expert in himself by seeing himself from a cup half empty point of view. If we could see ourselves the way God sees us, if we could understand the delight he takes over us, we may not be so down on us. It's true. Scripture says he sings over us. We witnessed the child dedication moment this morning. The Older Testament talks about how God sings over us. Like children, he's singing over us. I had two daughters, sang over them. I don't know if they enjoyed it, but I sang over them. <laughs> right? We, take, we express our delight when we do that. God expresses his delight over us. Can we reach for the reset button today? 
and say, Lord, I want to pause. I want to pause this negative tape that is playing in my head about me. I want to start believing the best about me. I want to start believing what you believe about me. I'm not going to be blind and oblivious to my weaknesses. I know who I am. I'm not going to have an overinflated ego. But I do want to recognize my intrinsic value as a son, as a daughter of the one true God. And every area of weakness and every flaw and every failure is covered under the atonement of Jesus the Christ. And it's awesome. And if I am in Jesus, then my eternity is secured in him. And I am anticipating that the best is yet to come, right? The best is yet to come. Amen to that. So this is the last of our voices teaching. Um, I hope there, I've enjoyed putting these together because uh, it's been so good for me. Um, I, I am an open book around King Street. You know that. I have spoken to people who are far more competent than me about my own inner chatter. If you're here today and you know firsthand that defeating voice of inner negative chatter, I am with you. I have not graduated from the school of negative self-talk. I still have my moments when the, um, the negative part of me kind of gets the platform and starts lecturing me and reminding me of the things I don't always get right. And uh, we are all a work in progress in this place. And it's okay, right? The mental health movement has told us it's okay not to be okay. It's okay for us to have this work of sanctification to be ongoing, and we hope and we pray and we work toward it, that it's progressive. It's progressive sanctification, but it doesn't mean there are not setbacks. Setbacks happen when it comes to life in the kingdom of God. And that's why we call, Jesus himself does, the gospel of grace. It is a gospel of grace, not to be abused, but to be celebrated. The grace of God is not to be abused. Paul says, don't sin so that grace can abound. But when we do sin, grace is there for us. Grace is greater than all of our sin. And that's good news.